And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast, where the NBA draft is only two and a half days away. The offseason is in full swing. The rumors are flying. But as you know, the NBA Finals are the whole reason we do this. The championship is the whole reason we do this. And somehow, mostly because of the man I'm about to introduce, I have finagled a tradition where the coach of the championship-winning team comes on this stupid podcast and tells stories from their championship-winning season. Now a four-time champion as a head coach, a five-time champion as a player. It's getting ridiculous. The head coach of the Golden State Warriors, fresh from the parade, Steve Kerr, my friend, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on again, Zach. Well, I mean, look, just don't don't think you, the team won. That's all. You're just yeah. you're at this point. You're just mandated to do it. It's a tradition unlike any other. Yeah, uh, that's what they that's what they say about the mass. That's the Masters, right? No, no, that's your podcast with the championship winning coach. Yes, yes, coach. Before we get to the the important stuff, it has come to my attention. I have photographic evidence of this that after the parade, there was some sort of feast party something and as part of the buffet there was a plate of cannolis decorated (laughs) in blue and gold and the sign next to them you know normally they describe what food it is and all this stuff it just said holy cannoli is this true (laughs) i uh i did not see it so i can't can't confirm it nor deny it but uh, i saw a million signs uh, along the parade route that just said Holy cannoli. So Clay always manages to uh, to leave his influence for sure. We we have to be careful with this because it's such a precious moment. We can't overdo it. We can't overuse the phrase now. It can't become too it just it was a perfect moment in time and I think we need to leave it a little bit more alone. I don't want it to become corrupted. The holy cannoli phrase? Yes, the holy cannoli. I, I think it belongs to Clay. I don't think anybody else can really just, you know, throw it out there. I think we got to just leave it to him. Um, it's been a long – I could tell seeing you after the game in, in several different venues that this was, this was a celebratory um, – this was not a relief championship. This was a pure joy championship what you guys have been through in the last three years as a basketball team, the injuries, the departures, we don't have to relive that. But I I wanted to start with, in all of that time, maybe it was the news that Clay had sustained a second catastrophic injury right when it appeared he was going to come back. Maybe it was a low point like the 53-point loss to the Raptors in Tampa. Were there moments where you looked around and thought, we'll be a good team again, but maybe the days of, May, June, maybe that's just over for us. And I wonder what that means for me, for Steph. Were there ever moments like that? Yeah, there were plenty of moments like that, Zach. I mean, I, you know, we had the worst record in the league two years ago. And last year we we missed the playoffs altogether. I, th- I think in the back of our minds, we always thought, all right, when Clay comes back, uh, we'll have a chance. And But I don't know that any of us really knew what that meant. You know, um, I have said to you before, um, our, our finish to last year, you know, 15 and five, where we looked and felt like ourselves again, gave us a, a, a lot of hope going into this year. And, you know, knowing Clay was going to come back and uh, having had Wiggins for, you know, a little bit over a year, and, um, you know, it, it felt coming into this year like we could do something special, but 
Honestly, I don't think any of us knew whether we could win the whole thing or not. I wonder about Clay. 940-something days, two injuries, a pandemic, which separated him from the team to some degree. I mean, it's hard for me to remember what the rules were in April and May and June of 2020. I wonder if you have sort of any memories of that time, um, particularly low moments for him, a Zoom during the pandemic where, you know, not only is he going through these injuries, but everyone's trying to figure out what life looks like. Um, a a setback of some kind or a a practice where he just didn't have it the way he thought he was going to have it. I don't know if you have any memories of like that because I I feel like we're rushing past what he has overcome. An ACL, which in your day was career-threatening no longer, and an Achilles, which although KD has recovered from it and Clay has recovered from it, is still about as catastrophic an injury as a basketball player can suffer. I wonder if you have any sort of memories of that journey for him. Yeah, an awful lot. Um, One that jumps out is um, maybe about a month or so before he made his comeback. So I'm guessing uh, mid-December, we had a home game and he, you know, he's been toiling away for a couple of years now. And um, after the game, he went out onto the court and sat on the bench as the stands emptied out at chase. And I had uh, a couple people come to me and say, coach, you, you need to go check on clay. He's out sitting on our bench and he's despondent right now. And, and so I went out there and he was basically crying on the bench by himself. And um, Steph and Draymond both came out there. And uh, I think everything was just, it was just too much for clay at that point. He, he was st- still kind of wondering like, is this ever going to happen for me? And, um, everything that he had been through seemed to kind of come to a, a boiling point in, you know, for him emotionally. And he just, he just started crying and, you know, there were people, uh, still filing out of the arena and, and like the other team, you know, comes out to see their families and stuff. So I, there were a lot of people around and, and people were kind of looking over, but, you know, he just had his head in his hands and, and he was the irony is he was only a, a few weeks away from actually coming back, but it was just s- such a haul that I think it just overwhelmed him. How was he looking at that point behind closed doors, and what were your expectations for him in the first month or two of his, or or even even flash forward to May and June? What, what if you thought ahead like that? What did you expect, and what was he looking like? Well, he was looking fine, um, but it was, you know, coming back from uh, from an Achilles is such a painstaking process, and, and it's 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 just step by step, literally. And so our training staff, um, you know, just put him through all these different exercises and would take him from one step to the next, and and but it was really really slow. So, you know, he'd start doing some five on zero stuff where we're you know going through our offense. Um, He'd be running, you know, straight ahead, some sprints, um, you know, maybe a week later, he'd start to kind of do some figure eight stuff and start to cut. And, but it was, it was such a slow process that we didn't really get to see much of him until uh, we had a, a game that was canceled in, in Denver or postponed um, because of COVID. I think a bunch of the Nuggets players had COVID and, and so that we were in Denver and the game got postponed and, and we, so we had a scrimmage instead at the Pepsi center and, 
and Clay played in that scrimmage for the first time. And, um, and that was a big moment for him and for us. And uh, it was kind of cool too. You know, we're, we're there in this empty arena, the game's been canceled and it was almost like, Hey, this is a, it's a perfect night for Clay to come back and for us to, to get some work in and for him to feel part of things again. And uh, I thought that was a, a big night for him. And it, it, he came back, you know, less than a week later, I think. Are people in that scrimmage guarding Clay like a normal player or are they like afraid to touch him and get physical? And was there ever a moment in those practices early on where he took a stumble or a fall or, or tried to jump and dunk it and when everyone held their breath a little bit? He never took a fall. Like nothing ever happened that was scary. I think the, at first, you know, players uh, were a little bit reluctant to guard him too hard. They didn't want to be physical with him. They, you know, and I, I think once they saw him for a few days um, and he looked fine, um, they, everyone realized, okay, you know, this is, this is no big deal. Like Clay can play again. And, uh, and so the, the scrimmage process was good. We had a lot of them. Um, and as, as he got more and more comfortable and got closer to playing in a real game, the rest of our guys got, got more comfortable with him. There was, you, you described this championship as Stephen Curry's crowning achievement so far. And there's a long, long way to go for his career, man. A man is not slowing down. Um, and he has kind of come out with this, what are they going to say now phrase? You know, what you're going to say now? There's T-shirts of it. I think in one of your many media things you've done, you talked about, you know, we, a lot of the guys wanted to win this for mm-hmm. Steph. And, and that phrasing kind of struck me because it's like Steph Curry's an all-time great player like at worst top 15 top 16 coming in to this finals let alone now um and i all the he hasn't won a finals mvp and durant and this it all struck me as as nonsense and my assumption was the team just sort of laughed at it like this dumb media creating storylines but to hear it phrased like win it for steph it, it almost seemed like that noise seeped in a little bit and you guys actually did hear it and actually, whether you thought it was valid or not, wanted to shut it off. Is that true? Oh, it's definitely true. And one thing I've learned, Zach, is that the guys today hear and read everything. So, um, you know, whether it's Draymond or Clay or Steph, any perceived slight that they feel they they use as motivation and they see all that stuff and there's so much chatter you know um there's just so much that's out there i mean you got the whole league players all over the league are tweeting back and forth at each other you got you know so many different media personalities and everybody's like throwing shots you know lobbing shots uh, across the country at each other it really is bizarre it's a totally different world you know from from the one i played in um and so because of that, it's a different atmosphere. And a lot of these narratives really take hold. And, um, and I think for Steph, he's, he's heard it over the years that, you know, he's never won finals MVP. And, and the last two titles were all about, you know, KD and, and uh, you know, the first one, Andre got MVP. And, um, but as you know, you know, the great players are always looking for what's next. And they're looking for another challenge. And they're looking for anything uh, to motivate themselves. And I think Steph used that as motivation this year, for sure. What are your memories of the 43 points in, in game four? Because that was one of the great games I've ever been to, considering the stakes, considering the defense you were facing, 
And I thought they largely played him pretty well in that game. I mean, these are crazy in a phone booth shots he's hitting. Did you have a moment with him after the game? You remember, was there a shot that he hit? I mean, I remember in Oklahoma City in 2016 when Clay was going crazy, you had a moment with a fan just sort of laughing at, like, this guy's ridiculous. Did you have a moment like that from game four or something you'll remember from that game? I think just um, in the second half he had, I think, um, at least two, maybe three shots coming left, you know, beyond, way, well beyond the top of the key, you know, seven feet beyond the three-point line um, with guys all over him. And I don't even know how he saw the rim. And he, he made two in a row, um, you know, I think mid-fourth quarter that were just uh, ridiculous shots. Like nobody on earth can make those shots. And um, obviously he carried us that, that whole night, but those two shots, uh, were, were just stunning. And, um, I think those were backbreakers too. You could just see, you could, you could feel the crowd, you know, sort of losing, losing hope as he was making all those shots. Um, did you have a moment with him after, after the, the series was over that you can share a, a conversation? Uh, I mean, you guys have now been together for eight years you have a history that predates that which we will talk about later I, I don't know if there's a moment with him or his family a conversation that you can share just sort of you guys put it all in perspective or was it just we're going to have some drinks and party and that's it well we shared we shared uh, some words on the stage you know um, as all the players and family members were on the stage and and I just shared with them how much you know he has meant to me and and basically you know what I told him was that as great as everybody has been you know, with the Warriors from ownership to front office to, you know, coaching staff to uh, great players coming through here, all-stars. Um, but this was, you know, this has all been built on him, you know, like most dynasties. I mean, the Spurs were basically built, you know, on Tim Duncan. And, um, you know, the, the Lakers were built on Magic Johnson. The Celtics were built on, you know, built on Larry Bird. Bulls on Michael Jordan, taking nothing away from all the great players and coaches and GMs and, 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 you know, ownership people that contribute to all this, but there's usually one transcendent star that is the, is the reason for these, whatever you want to call them dynasties or runs or, or whatever. And, and that's what I shared with him that he's basically the reason that, this has all happened. Now, he's, he's obviously, you know, th there are basketball reasons for that and personality reasons for that. Yeah. The personality reasons have been ultra competitive, ultra devoted to his conditioning, a, 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 um, a humility, a, a willingness to share the spotlight in the game with other players and play a style that, that you guys play. I, I wonder if there's just something, some story or something about him that can put that humility part because Tim Duncan had that too. You've called him short Tim Duncan. I, I, obviously, we can point to his willingness to have Durant come in. I don't. I, that's so far in the past now, and and it's such a singular circumstance. I don't know if there is something that you can kind of bring that personalize it a little bit because it's easy to say, well, the guy's so humble, he's so humble, he stays humble. I, I just wonder if there's something where we can flesh that out a little bit. Well, it, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one thing because it's literally every single day where you feel that humility, just the way he carries himself and the way he celebrates others' success. You see him on the sidelines when he's not in the game, when somebody gets hot and he just goes crazy. And he, you know, the, the other players feel his joy for them and their success. And I think that's a big part of it. 
Um, you know, for me, what jumps out right away is, um, you know, the first round against Denver, he was coming off that injury and he was limited to, I think, 20 minutes the first game. So we brought him off the bench and, and, um, you know, after the first game, the minutes are going up after the second game, he's up, you know, he's going to be up near 30. And at that point, it's like, I go to him, I'm like, you know, Steph, like if you want to start, like, you know, you, you're Steph Curry, you, you know, you get to start if you want. And, and he's just, you know, he's just matter of fact, he's like, you know, we're playing great. Um, Jordan's in a great groove. Uh, we're up 2-0. you know, let's keep going. Let's, let's keep going with this. And, um, and he was perfectly content, um, coming off the bench. We, we completely joked about it for the next couple of days. You know, um, I remember the starting lineups, I think, uh, as the starters were being called out in either game two or game three, he was standing next to me and I just, I turned to him and he said, you know, I said, you know, Steph, if you work hard enough someday, you too could start an NBA playoff game. And, and he laughed. And then, you know, the next several days as he's practicing and working, he's like, he's like, look at me, coach, look how hard I'm working. You know, I, I deserve, I do, I deserve this. I know I can do this. And so that's Steph, like, like what, what, what might be a serious issue with other players, like it turns into a complete joke for, for him where it's like, we're laughing about it because bottom line is he knows we're winning. Jordan Poole's playing great. Um, the rotation makes sense. And, you know, we're up 3-0, whatever it is. Like, no problem. Let's just do it. Someone actually asked me, I wish I could remember what show I was on. The host asked me, should they make this permanent? It's rolling so well. Should <laughs> should they just bring Steph off the bench? I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a real thing. But oh. it, was, it, was, it was actually working that well against the Nuggets. It was working great. And, and I think Mike Malone even said something during the, the series. He said uh, – he said, Steph Curry's the greatest six man in the history of the NBA. And, and I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, oh, my God. I mean, this is uh, – can you imagine? I turned to my staff. I'm like, can you imagine, you know, you're, you're sitting there down on the other bench and, you know, six minutes into the game, you see Steph checking in at the scorer's table. Like, that's kind of terrifying, you know. And, and, uh, and, and like I said, you know, Jordan Poole, it was his first playoff run, and he's rolling. And he got off to this great start and, and Steph recognized that. And again, that's part of his humility. Like he, he saw it and he's like, yeah, let, let's let Jordan keep going. You, you played with Tim Duncan. You, you played against, you know, Akeem Olajuwon. You played with Michael Jordan. Um, you've coached against LeBron, coached for and against Durant, um, Kobe, all of it, Shaq. Uh, did you overlap with Kareem at all? Yeah, play uh, just I think one year, my rookie year. Um, yeah. He, so, so you've lived all of these guys, most of them that are in this discussion. Do you consume ever as as sort of? Do you ever step back and consume the game like we do in the media, ranking players? Who's is he in the top ten all time? Is he top twelve all time? Is is Steph above this guy? Steph and Kobe is going to be, be a debate now. Do you do do people inside the game think that's silly, or as someone who's lived all that history, do you actually find yourself thinking about it sometimes? I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't ever think about like who ranks where, you know, um, because it's, it's sort of a futile effort anyway. Um, but um, I do marvel just, be, you know, because I've been uh, so blessed to, to witness so much of NBA history, you know, playing with so many great players against them. Um, 
I do marvel at Steph and the impact that he's made uh, in terms of changing the game, changing the way it's played, changing the way people think of the point guard position. Um, like he's one of the great influencers in the history of the league. And that's, that's hard to do. You know, that's a, that's, you know, most people don't ever do that. Has it been interesting to you to watch guys who are ball handlers with Steph like range come into the NBA, but they don't move off the ball the way Steph does. You know, we can talk about Trey Young or whatever. I can name the names. Trey Young, even Dame doesn't move off the ball like Mm -hmm. Steph does. We just haven't seen a guy um, who can handle the ball at a high level and run around like Ray Allen at a high level. And even in more intricate, unpredictable patterns and calculated patterns than Ray Allen ran. Has it been interesting to watch those guys come into the league and and none of them really try to emulate what Steph does? I think what... um... That is the case. I think you're right. Um, very few, if any, players um, are are a threat on and off the ball like Steph is. If I had to guess why, it's because Steph was not a point guard in college. You know, he played off the ball at Davidson. And so he, he really grew up as a player um, running off screens. And, and his dad was a guy who ran off screens and played off the ball. So his whole childhood, he's, you know, he's a, a guy who's playing off the ball, running off screens, but he's, in the meantime, he's working on his ball handling um, and becoming this wizard w- with the ball so that once he became so potent in high ball screens, he already had this whole foundation of working off the ball. And probably most players who grow up, um, you know, handling the ball and, 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 you know, the, the guys you're talking about, the, the young generation of stars in the league, most of them don't have that background that Steph has of playing, you know, for so long off the ball. What was the 24 hours like after game four, when you quote unquote benched Draymond Green during the fourth quarter, when he would normally have been playing, and went and went without him for a four or five minute period where he would have normally have been in the game. Obviously, he is a strong personality, a, a personality type you have valued for all the all the all the strength that we're talking about. But that a lot of people were worried that oh, this is going to blow up. I I sat there and thought these guys have so much shared history that mm-hmm. I just don't see this as a as a problem. But I do wonder. How do you handle those next 24 hours? Do you meet with him right after the game? Do you guys go out for a drink afterwards? Do you just text and say, we'll talk the next morning? How does that happen? How does that unfold? Um, really nothing for, you know, for a couple of days. I mean, we, we won the game, uh, obviously. Uh, if we had lost the game, maybe it's different. Maybe I approach him, you know, right away. But we won the game, so everybody's happy. Uh, we spend the night. We fly home the next day. We have the day off. So it wasn't until you know, the following day at practice that uh, we actually had a chance to talk and, and um, he totally understood, you know, we, we got on a run um, when we, after we took him out and Looney was playing great. And I, I forget what the run was, but, you know, something like 12, four or, you know, 14 to four, something like that. And, and um, like most coaches, you know, you, you just, you don't want to, you don't want to change the, the rotation when, you know, the combination when things are going well. Um, so really, you know, we ended up talking a little bit and it was more 
strategic. We watched the offensive uh, clips together of the game, and we just tried to locate, you know, what Boston was doing and how he could, you know, find ways to attack them better and, and what, you know, what positions he could be in. Um, but we have so much history together. You know, we've won titles, lost titles, uh, you know, gotten into countless arguments, uh, near fights, but there's a, we're like family, you know, we're, we, we are just, we're so tight that um, we're just going to have moments and we always just work through them. Do you listen to the podcast, the Draymond Green show? He, he wants no. people, he wants people to mention it by name, the Draymond Green show. It's a very good podcast. Do you ever listen to it? No, I do not because I, I listen to Draymond every single day. So, <laughs> um, Gary Payton II is just an unbelievable story. Um, he told Malika Andrews during the finals that he actually inquired about being working in the video room for you guys. Do you remember that happening? Like, did that get to your level? I mean, is that a, is that a serious thing? Or is I, I, that's just a crazy – that's like four months ago or something. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, we are always looking for video guys who can play, you know, so you get the extra bodies when the, when the young guys who aren't playing many minutes in the games have to scrimmage. So, you know, everybody wants video guys who can play, but that would be pretty extreme to have, uh, you know, Gary Payton coming out of your video room and then dominating those scrimmages. So I didn't know that was a real thing uh, until I heard that story. When, when he, so he breaks his elbow in, what was that game two against the game Grizzlies? Two. Yeah. Um, and it, it's immediately clear it's a serious injury. What's the first time you see him? Does that I, it was in the first half? I think. Do you see him at halftime? What's after the game like? Is it is it morose? Was there immediately hope that maybe if we got far enough, uh, um, you know, he could come back? And and beyond that, this is a guy who, as you know, has fought for every inch, every dollar, every minute. Um, what do you say to someone like that when their when their season might be over? Yeah, I mean, I just remember going going into the locker room afterwards. We lost game two in Memphis, and and so everybody was bummed already. And I, I remember, you know, going in, and he had his arm in a sling, and I just, you know, gave him a hug and and um, asked him what the prognosis was. And uh, Gary's a really upbeat guy, you know, and he said, "Hey, I, I'll be back. I'm going to be back during the playoffs." And um, I was, you know, I was angry number one because I thought it was a dirty play, I, I, but I was. I was really worried too, because, you know, we were starting him to guard jaw and I thought, all right, um, you know, even if we can get past this series, now we got Chris Paul, you know, coming up, Luka Doncic, I mean, it, like we, we, we needed Gary. And um, so fortunately we were able to, you know, get by Memphis and Dallas. And then I thought that the Boston series actually changed in game two when Gary was available. You know, um, he wasn't quite ready for game one. Um, he suited up, but we were only going to put him in for like a late defensive stop or something. And, and that was to... and that was because the elbow wasn't yeah. quite ready to shoot jumpers yet. Is that what yeah. it was? He had scrimmaged the day before game one and couldn't shoot a three. He could only. And I, I asked him, I said, can you shoot a three? He goes, no, but I could step in and take a dribble and uh, take an 18 footer. I said, don't tell our analytics people that. <laughs> Uh, there's no way you're going to get into the game, <laughs> but no, he wasn't quite ready and I didn't feel comfortable playing him yet. And then we had two days off in between games one and two and th those extra few days helped him. And by the time he was ready for game two, 
uh, I felt way better about things because obviously to beat Boston, you, you've got to guard, you know, Tatum and Brown and, and Marcus Smart and, and Gary's an elite, elite defender. So I thought he, he changed the series when he got healthy. Man, I've stood next to that dude. He is so short to be an elite defender. It, yeah. It's cra- it's crazy. He's he's like it's like one of my buddies, a normal looking size guy, and he can guard Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Like sometimes they'll shoot over him and stuff. But I mean, he is he, he's incredible. And I wonder when that when that corner three in game two went in, mm. that had to be a fun moment for you. Say, okay, he's ready to contribute in, in this series. It's and it's a. He's going to get a, a, a major contract now, whether it's from you or, or some other yeah. team. Like he's going to get paid. I think it's an awesome story. I'm thrilled for Gary because he's he's been working uh, for six years since he left Oregon State. You know, to, to try to find a home, and um, he is uh, he is an incredible story. He's an amazing defender. He, he's he's shorter than I am. I mean, I think he's probably six two. Uh, but massive wingspan, and I'm talking elite, elite athleticism. I mean, the lateral speed and quickness, uh, he would have been an incredible free safety in the NFL if he wanted to. I mean, he just covers so much ground. And what makes him so good on the ball is that you can't get around him. You try to get around him, you know, you get one dribble past him and you think you got him, and the second dribble, he's taking it from you He's because he's so quick and he's got those long arms and strong hands and he 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 poked, I think, four or five steals away from Boston over the course of those last five games when they thought he, you know, they thought they had him, and he just uh, beat them to the spot and, and stole the ball. He's he's just incredible. When did you decide you were going to put Andre Iguodala in for the last minute of Game Six? Um, you know, we were standing next to each other um, near the end, and uh, there's a, about two minutes left minute and a half left. And, and I said, you know, I should probably leave these guys out here. Don't you think just so to let them soak it in. And he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes, I think that's a good idea. He goes, can I go in? And I go, that's a great idea. And I said, go get wigs. And I figured, you know, we'd, we'd get the four, you know, mainstays out there, Steph, Clay, Draymond and Andre, and then wigs gets to come to the bench and get this you know, embrace from his teammates and ovation from the Warriors fans who were there. And then to see our, our four guys, you know, on the floor. And I, I saw Andre go and literally take the game ball from somebody on the Celtics, walk over to Steph and hand it to Steph. It was a pretty cool moment. You, you told me something for a feature I wrote on Wiggins about why you're glad you're not the GM of the team, because you would have thrown yourself in front of the tracks of, salary dumping Andre Iguodala to yeah. the Memphis Grizzlies, which paved the way for D'Angelo Russell, which paved the way for Andrew Wiggins and Jonathan Kaminga. Uh, I wonder if you can share a, a, a little of that and a little of, of sort of why that is. Because Andre is a, is a prickly personality. Everybody knows he's a basketball genius. Um, but w- why that is, other than, you know, he's he's been around a lot and he's a smart guy and you bounce ideas off him and all that. Well, just everything that he's done for the franchise. And, and that's the hardest thing about professional sports you know you grow close with somebody and then uh it's you you know there there are times where you just have to make trades you have to move people and and what he had done for the franchise and in turn what he had done for me you know as a young coach I mean literally my first year coaching I asked him to to come off the bench he's never come off the bench in his career and he did it and 
did it beautifully and it and it it, it really solidified our bench and, and he wasn't he wasn't psyched about it coach no right? he wasn't happy the first month but i think the the arizona connection the fact that we both played for lute olson was really helpful uh we tend to see the game the same way and uh so he trusted me even though he didn't like it and then once he got comfortable with it he really embraced it um the other thing i feel strongly about with andre is that you know our our team has a certain craziness to it you know the the stephen clay shot selection is, at times is just insane <laughs> and andre is the guy over the years who has just sort of tempered everything and and you know in his prime the first you know four years when he was here when he was you know playing all the big minutes and playoff games he was the guy who settled us down and and made sense of the game and uh so I, we shared a connection in terms of you know what needed to happen for us to win and for our team to settle down and he was the guy to get that done. I'll give you a funny Andre story from during the finals. I don't know who I was talking to. I wish I could remember. It was it was a front office guy on another team. We were talking about Andre Iguodala. And as I want to do when talking about Andre Iguodala, I bring up the fact that he is the greatest I've ever seen at the swipe down steal. Mm-hmm. That it's completely mm-hmm. uncanny. And this guy said, it's so funny you say that because we spliced together like a, a five to ten minute edit of Andre Guadala swipe down steals, hoping to send it to our young guys to teach them how to do this. Is there some common thread in all these swipe downs that explains why Andre Guadala is so good at this? And his most high profile ones came in that down the stretch of game six against Oklahoma City in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and they watched the five or 10 minute edit and the team officials were like, no, he's just awesome at it. There's nothing yeah. to teach anybody. He's just yeah. too good at it. Yeah, it's a combination of uh, wingspan, athleticism, and uh, a brain, you know, a, a, a guy who just sees and feels the game. So it's pretty much impossible to teach that. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, Birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. After the latest mass shooting in Texas, you gave an impassioned plea 
for action, a plea that was both impassioned and somehow very precise in its language and at the target of its criticism, of your criticism, which is a hard thing to be at once, that impassioned and that precise. What was the next 48 hours like for you? Because I think that became a touchstone in a way that you probably didn't even expect because, as, as you have said, this is sadly not the first time that you have yeah. given comments like this. But what was – this one was different. What was it like from your perspective? Well, it was incredibly emotional, um, you know, and, and I heard from a, a, a lot of people, a lot of really influential people and, and uh, you know, people in, in government, uh, people um, – you know, in um, the tech world, uh, you know, corporate people reaching out saying, what can I do? You know, what can I do to, to help? And, and so it was, it was in a lot of ways, it was, um, it was gratifying to know that so many people wanted to do something that shared my frustrations. Um, but it was also just really emotional just because, you know, having lost my dad to gun violence, I, I just, you know, I, I knew how just awful um, this was going to be for so many people in Uvalde, so many family members and friends and, and young people and, and all these lives lost. And so just, you know, it's depressing and emotional um, all at once. But um, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was nice to know how many people think the same way that I do and, and, and want so desperately for our government to follow through on some, some real meaningful action. You said something at the end of that, those remarks about how we can't just go play the game and say, you know, go dubs, go Mavs. And as I was preparing for this podcast and, and fishing around for good questions to ask you and thinking about Steph's legacy, and it struck me like, that's, that's exactly what we're doing. Not you, but that's exactly what I'm doing in preparing for this podcast. That's exactly what the sports world is, is doing and debating Steph's all-time rank and this and that. It's sadly, that proved prophetic. And I don't even have a question as much as when, when I start thinking about things like this. The problem seems so intractable and huge that I, I feel helpless like, like all of us – who feel a certain way would almost like have to quit our jobs and put our life on hold. Like clearly the money is not enough. The donations are not enough. The mm -hmm. occasional remarks are not enough. And it just, you saying it go dubs, go Mavs. I, it just hit me as I was preparing. Like I'm, I'm doing that, that exact thing. And I, I just, it's, it's a helpless, frankly, sad feeling. And I, I wonder if you think back to that part of your remarks and say, Oh yeah, you know, we just won the championship. We're partying and, have we left it in the rear view? Is, is, that, is that something you feel almost? No, no, not at all. Um, I, I think it's important that, um, you know, we pay attention to everything. Uh, you know, and I think I was speaking uh, specifically about the fact that we were going to do a moment of silence. And I'm not kidding. We've had 15 or so moments of silence during my eight-year coaching career where we mourned the loss of you know, a, a huge number of human beings due to gun violence. And, and so the frustration of just doing moments of silence and sending thoughts and prayers and, and, you know, all the stuff that, yes, it's nice and it's respectful, but um, unfortunately it doesn't really do anything. Um, it's, it's, it's frustrating. So um, I do think that there are people all over the country who are 
fighting the good fight. I, I heard a great podcast with Senator uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who's probably the, the most active senator uh, in, in the government regarding uh, gun safety. And, and he, had, he had great words. You know, he said, um, he said, this is an issue where we just need to keep pushing um, and eventually it's going to tip the other way. And one of the analogies he used was, he said, you know, 20 years ago, um, we didn't have gay marriage. And I know these are totally different subjects, but 20 years ago, President Obama, an unbelievably progressive, uh, incredibly intelligent human being, could not run on a platform of supporting gay marriage for fear of losing, even though you know inside he probably agreed to it right, or agreed a, a, upon it. So the issue is one where what we have to do is just make incremental progress. And we have to get the conservative senators from um, states that really support, you know, over the top, um, you know, gun uh, freedom laws. Um, we got to get those senators to, to, to recognize that they can still win their races if, even if they support some gun safety measures. Once they're able to reconcile that, um, a little bit like, like the gay marriage movement, you get enough momentum where people all over the country are finally saying, you know what, it's fine if, if there's gay marriage. Like, it's actually a good thing. And in, the, in, the, in terms of gun violence, you get enough conservative people to understand. Uh, and when I say conservative, I'm really speaking to people who are, are uh, really pro, you know, uh, gun rights. Like you get enough of them to understand that we're not taking away your Second Amendment rights. What we're trying to do is protect our citizens from being slaughtered in schools and malls and, and churches and everything else. And we can do both. You can still, you know, you, you still can have the right to bear arms, but, you know, maybe we, we could cut back on selling weapons of war to 18 year olds. Like that would be a good idea. But in the meantime, as Senator Murphy said, we just have to get the ball rolling enough to, to tip the scales and, and eventually get there. Let's do a couple of uh, basketball questions to finish it out. I thought you guys were going to win game six in Boston. I said it on TV and to anyone who asked me, I think the Celtics are just fatigued and worn out and the Warriors have kind of figured this series out a little bit. Um, I, a little, a, a few little birdies told me that, that you, I think had the same sense a little bit and maybe voiced it before the game uh, in, in something like let's let's, we're going to have to take a punch, but once we do, let's really punch back and see how they respond. Cause I think in your gut, you thought you felt pretty good about, about game six. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, we're lucky to have done this uh, a few times in the past, but it's really tough to change the momentum late in a series. You know, uh, once the two teams have played against each other, you know, everybody's kind of figured everything out. You kind of know who you're playing and you know, what you're, combinations are going to be all that stuff, but it's tough to change the momentum late. It's why so few teams, you know, come back from three, one down or whatever. Um, and we've been on the other end of that too, you know, but, but it takes something pretty dramatic to really 
change the momentum. And that's why when you do have a chance like we did in game six, you got to really come out swinging. And, um, you know, we weathered that storm at 14 to two. And then the, the rest of the first quarter was uh, one of the best stretches of basketball we've played all year. And so taking the lead at the end of the quarter and then carrying that into the second quarter uh, on that great run really uh, set the tone. What's the uh, the Kerr 316 t-shirt that was making the rounds today? Did you see this? Chris Chioza uh, had it on, Chris I think. Chris Chioza was wearing it. Uh, it's, it's, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin. I know that much. Yeah. Where, where did this come from? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you didn't cl- you didn't clank two beer cans together at the after party and pour it all over yourself. Nothing like I, that. I did not. So I have no idea what the t-shirt means. Um, it, it made me feel good because it made me look jacked. Because it, you know, like, yeah, that that's that didn't look like me at all. What was your level of concern, if any, when Memphis beat you guys by fifty points or whatever it was in Game <laughs> Five in Memphis, and they were whoop that trick, and Draymond was dancing? You know, you got a home game coming up, but like, you know, we've seen before, you don't want to mess around with that. That as a coach, I'm sure you're like, I'd like just to get the series over with. What the hell just happened here? Yeah, I mean, how could you not be concerned when you lose by? 39 and you trail by 55. I mean, that, that was, uh, that was probably our biggest test of the playoffs that, that game six, when we came back home and, uh, that's interesting. I I wasn't even there, you know, I had COVID and, uh, so Mike Brown coached and did a fantastic job. And, and, but that game was, uh, of all the, all the 22 playoff games, I think that was the, the biggest test. And, and that's, you know, you always have to pass a few of those tests, you know, during, during a run, another one was being down two one in Boston, that game four, obviously. Um, but I was really proud of the way the guys came out and, uh, in that Memphis, uh, game six and, uh, Memphis is tough. You know, they're on the rise. They've done a great job. They got a lot of young talent. Uh, Taylor's done a, a great job, uh, coaching that team. So, uh, That'll be uh, that'll be a fun one, you know, getting getting together with them next year. Well, Morant and Draymond are making sure of that on uh, social media, <laughs> Coach. Uh, you made like, a couple more quotes on then we're done. I promise. You mentioned being down two one to Boston. I remember, you know, there are no back to backs in the finals. There's often multiple games off days off, not between three and four. But if you froze life after game three, it just it, it did feel like this is going to be an interesting game coming up because. Boston feels bigger, stronger, more physical. Their defense has taken away a lot of what makes Draymond tick, what makes the Warriors' motion offense tick. I wonder what those 48, 24, 36 hours were like for you. Were you confident, like, if we just stick with it, there's a big Steph game coming, like, we figured out series before. We've been down 2-1 before, but this is the finals, and this team is imposing in ways that not a lot of teams are. What what was your sort of general feeling at that point? Uh, yeah, we felt very confident because we've been able to come back from 2-1 uh, a couple times before. Uh, I also felt like we were chasing our tail in game three. You know, we fell behind early. I don't think we had a great feel for the, the, the matchup yet. Um, I tried to play small in game three, which really backfired. You know, it was thought, a strange right, gonna... series that way where the first three or four games really felt kind of uneven. Like the, it, the feeling out process seemed to take longer than usual for teams at this level. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so game three, when, when, 
we fell down and I thought, yeah, man, we're going to, we got to space the floor and we got to get some shooting out there. We're going to have to find a way to score. Um, and that totally backfired. And so game, game four, we've, we, that's where we kind of switched our, our mindset to, to playing bigger and, and playing Looney and Draymond together more. And, and, uh, and Looney, Looney went from, I think I played him like 17 minutes in game three to, you know, 29 or 30 in, in game four. And, and, uh, and he was the right guy in the series. I, I did not handle game three very well, but we felt a lot better, you know, in, in game four about the matchups and about the combinations that we had out there. We're going to end like this. The floor is yours. If there's something you wanted to say about this season, this team, a particular player, a particular person in the organization, a particular story that we haven't gotten to somehow that you really wanted to talk about, I leave it to you. You are the coach of the championship team, so you get to close this out however you like. Boy, uh, there, there's a lot of ways I could go. Um, you know, Jordan Poole deserves a lot of love. So, do, so does Draymond Green. Draymond's the best defender in the world, and, and uh, his performance in games five and six were just ridiculous. But I, I have to just talk about Andrew Wiggins um, because his, his defense against both Luka – and Jason Tatum, um, you know, the, the last two series were just mind-blowing. And when you combine the individual defense with the rebounding, I mean, for, you know, 16 boards in game four, 11 in game five, um, and just incredible suffocating defense, um, there's no way, no way we win a championship without Wiggs. And to see – to see him grow, um, you know, the last couple of years, to see a guy who, you know, was maligned and, and um, you know, hadn't reached his potential, but to, to see a guy come in with such a pure heart and embrace coaching, embrace the advice of his elders on the team and really soak it all in and get better and better and then seize the moment and play the way he did. Um, it's kind of what coaching – what you, what you want coaching to be all about. You, you know, you want a guy who's got major talent, who's just going to buy in and, and, you know, embrace everything that's thrown at him. And that's exactly what Wiggs did. And uh, man, what a joy to coach him and what a pleasure to, to watch him play. Well, I'm glad you brought up Andrew Wiggins, coach, because the idiot host of this podcast somehow did not bring him up for 45 minutes and he was like <laughs> a, a top four player in the finals. So thank you for that. Uh, Coach, go enjoy it. The draft is in two days. You're probably going to have some work to do in the summer and all that. But just an incredible story, an incredible turnaround. You guys stuck with it. You kept you kept your belief. You got healthy, and you're back at the top of the league. And it, it's just – it's really an incredible story. So I congratulate you, and I look forward to seeing you maybe in Las Vegas for summer league. But get some downtime, and congratulations on everything. All right. Thanks so much, Zach. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes 
Hashtag vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, the NBA moves fast. The finals, bye-bye. We'll cherish the memories onto the NBA draft, which is in two days to help us break everything down. He just posted his latest mock draft. Now a solo act at ESPN after his co-star left us. How dare he to join the Portland Trailblazers, the founder of Draft Express, our draft guru, Jonathan Gavoni. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Zach. How are you? You miss Mike? You feel uh, like a, do you feel like a void in, in your life? He didn't die, you know, he's still around, True. you know, True. you can still talk to him, you know, he's not as, uh, you know, forthcoming as he once was with his opinions, but I do miss him. I mean, he was like a little brother to me. I uh, yeah, loved working with him every single day. He, you know, one of like the hardest workers and like really the best at this job that I've seen. So, you know, he outgrew the nest and, uh, he's moved on to bigger and better things. And I think he's only going to move up. So he's, um, He's phenomenal. I do miss him. I think we'll, we'll have some really good options to replace him. It's not going to be the same, but um, he set a very high bar for us. And I think there's a lot of people around the NBA who are very interested in the platform that uh, his former job offers. Let's before we get to Kyrie. And I just I, I can't I can't open with this before we get to Kyrie. Let's talk about the top three in the draft. Let's start there. Let's start at the top three. The top, the big names. Orlando 1, Oklahoma City 2, Houston 3. All along, it has seemed most likely that nobody gets cute here. Nobody tries to trade down and snag an extra asset because they think their guy might be there. The likeliest outcome to me, and you've been in the weeds more than I have, has been Orlando takes Jabari, Oklahoma City takes Chet, Houston takes Bancaro. Now, I will say, I I don't know how, like, locked in that is. I know that um, some people within the Bancaro camp, for instance, still are still have some hope that he might go higher than three. Not because they don't want to go to Houston, just because, you know, the higher you go, the more money you get, et cetera. How, how, what is your level of confidence that that, like if I had to bet, I'm still just betting on that one, two, three in that order. What's your level of confidence in, at this point? It's pretty high just because I talk to, you know, almost every team, now these days on, on a day-to-day basis. And that's one of the first questions I asked, you know, we're like, what are you hearing at the top? And it's always the same Jabari, Chet, Paolo. So it's, you know, these people's jobs to know these things, especially the teams that are right behind them. And that's how they feel. And that's um, just a sense I got from very early on, even before the lottery, that that was going to be the way that things looked. And, you know, I haven't heard anything to indicate. Otherwise, I think if Paolo felt like he had a chance to go one, he wouldn't have like 
pushed back his workout with Orlando again and again and again to the point that he's probably not going to make it in there at this point, you know? So um, I don't see how Orlando takes him without a workout. And Paolo didn't feel strongly enough that he's in play at one to actually get on a plane and go to Orlando. So, um, you know, these, uh, you know, Jeff Waltman is saying all the right things and he's doing a lot of research. You I know? love and yesterday he had comments like it's still it's still pretty early in the process. Like, yo, yo, dude, the draft's <laughs> in two days, man. No one's falling for that. Like, it's not early. April, it, like January was early. It's not early right now. I think you have to uh, to show that you're leaving no stone unturned. You know, like even when New Orleans got the number one pick, you know, and it was like such a home run that they were taking Anthony Davis. Dell Demps was still like, nope, we're going to do our research and explore it. You know, we knew he's like Anthony Davis, but they always say this, you know, so. Um, this I, is and, this and, is this is misinformation season and not just in the sense that like. You know, there's all rumors and buzz and games of telephone. Like, I, I, I think there, I think there are teams that are calculated enough to make calls to other teams or to people in the media just to put stuff into the atmosphere that they made this particular call for this particular reason, just to get that spreading around a little bit. And the 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 notion of the call, the reason behind the call, is like actually fake. Yeah, but that only takes you so far, you know, like you do this for 20 years and you figure out pretty quickly who's full of in this business. And because we're, the truth is going to come out in two days from now. So, I mean, I keep, you know, pretty meticulous notes here. And, you know, I mean, I've got my list of guys that like these people are not reliable sources of information. And I've got my list of these are people that don't miss year after year. Me and too. I, I stick with the guys that don't miss. Um. The, the, the reasoning I've heard for, I mean, all these guys, these three guys are, are all really good. Everyone has different opinions on who's the best, who's whatever. And like, you know, more and more, like a lot of the guys that I really trust are kind of whispering, like, I think Bancaro's being underrated a little bit, like as, as maybe the best all around guy of these guys. What I keep hearing from people who have talked to Orlando is they view Jabari not just as a great prospect, but as the guy of those three that is most prepared to step in right away and play a major role on a team that I think feels some pressure. I know Jeff Weltman talked yesterday. We're not, we don't want to rush back to mediocrity, but I think there is some pressure there to like, we've got to make a big step next year. And, and Jabari is the guy most prepared to help us do that right away. Is that, is that if, if you heard similar stuff? You hear all, you know, all of the above in terms of this guy has the highest floor and this guy has the lowest ceiling and, you know, it, it really varies. And, I think Paolo offensively is clearly the best player in this draft. And he also plays the most unique role. It just is a guy who's 6'10 and can handle pass and shoot. And you can really legitimately run an offense through him. You can throw him the ball in the low post. He's incredible in the open floor. And he's he's 19 years old. And he's also shown some flashes of, you know, really dynamic shot making ability when he's playing with confidence. And and he did it in the, at the biggest stage. I mean, nobody played better than him in the NCAA tournament. You know, when the stakes were highest, he was going up against Texas Tech, the number one defense in, in the country, destroyed them. And so I think, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said for, for Paolo. I think he's phenomenal, Percy. I think all three of these guys are really, really good. So people are always trying to get me to, like, pit one guy against the other. And I'm like, no, they're all really good. It's just different flavors. And honestly, like, all three. The three of them would be phenomenal together, you know, like in one lineup. And so 
Um, I think it's a great draft. I think there's really good depth to it. And um, I think it's a really, really exciting class. Yeah, I keep hearing this analysis like, well, which one of them could be the number one option on a championship team? I'm like, can we just can we just like hit the brakes for a second? Like how many guys are there on earth that can be the number one option on a championship team? And we're already talking about whether these teenagers can someday be the number one option on a championship. How about we start with they're really good they seem like guys you would want on your team that complement other really good players. Let's just be happy with that and and move on. If Bancaro, by the way, almost no matter who Houston picks, I'm excited to watch the Rockets next year. But if Bancaro is there, that Jalen Green, Shengun, Bancaro trio is going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. And I, and I keep hearing questions about, well, you know, long term, can Houston build a competent defense around Green, Shengun, and Bancaro? And I, I agree you have to start thinking about those kind of questions early. I also am like, I don't know. We'll see what Bancaro. I mean, what have you heard about Bancaro's defense? Because this is your forte, not mine. I mean, that's the most divisive part of his game. How much how much can he improve with experience, effort, and all that? Because I think Jalen Green actually, I, I think, kind of developed the rep as a chucker, as a rookie. I think he's actually kind of unselfish as a passer and a cutter and has the tools and I think the will to be a, a good defender in the NBA. I'm actually optimistic about his not the non-scoring parts of his game. When Paolo wants to defend, he can absolutely do it. There's no question about it. The issue is that his energy and his focus really fluctuates, especially off the ball. He can, you know, often be, you know, late to make rotations. It is just not unique for a kid who's 19 years old. You know, he's going to be going through this for a few years. Every rookie does. He's definitely not like a great defensive rebounder. Um, you know, there's just some questions about, you know, like how good can you be with a, you know, a guy with a seven-one wingspan? You know, optimally, like he's playing like the five with like four shooters around him in like a playoff series, right? Like it's hard to see him and Shingun surviving in, in, in a playoff series and you actually being competitive. So he's going to probably have to anchor the defense and, you know, he averaged less than a block per game, you know? I mean, so that's, that's just not, you know, the seven one wingspan, it's just not ideal, but um, he brings you so much on the other end of the floor that, you know, like, and he's, you're drafting third, like don't overthink this Houston. Like that's the guy. What's your wingspan Gavoni? Have you ever measured your wingspan? It's a neg. It's negative. I'm like you're a negative. Five. You're you're a Redick. You're a JJ Redick. I'm like Luke Kennard. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm slightly positive. I'd like to measure my wingspan now. I think I'm slightly over my height, which is five eleven and three quarters. I claim six feet. I claim six feet. I round up to six feet because I will shrink in my old age. So I got to claim six feet while I'm within a quarter of an inch of six feet. Uh, yeah, th these guys are super exciting. We're going to talk about where the draft really starts at four with Sacramento. But before we do that, we have to talk about Kyrie Irving. Are you ready to talk about Kyrie Irving? Can you, can you, can you stomach this? Are you ready to do this? I love it. Let's do it. So this idea that the Nets and Kyrie Irving are suddenly at a, quote, impasse is um, ridiculous. They've been at an impasse for a long time. I've been writing and saying on this podcast for literally months, why are so few people talking about how we don't know what team Kyrie Irving is going to be on next year? Why is it this like fait accompli that he's going to be on the Nets? And then like the idea that he is um, frequently unavailable and that that would give the Nets qualms about offering him a four or five year guaranteed contract is like not a new idea. The Nets have been thinking about this internally for months and months and months. So this impasse 
is not new. Here's where we are. Kyrie Irving has a player option next year for $36 million. He has till June 29th to decide whether to opt in or opt out of that contract. His trade value could not possibly be lower for a player of his caliber at this moment. The Nets have zero interest in selling low on him because they're just not in the business, like any smart NBA team, of trading their guys at the lowest point of their value. Unless something crazy happens and a team happens to value Kyrie Irving as if he has played 100% of the games in the last three or four seasons. The teams that have been mentioned in the Athletic article yesterday as potentially interested in Kyrie Irving, Lakers, Knicks, Clippers. Let's start Clippers. I don't think the Clippers are interested in Kyrie Irving. They could always have a change of heart between now and whenever. I I just don't see that organization upending itself for Kyrie Irving. So I'm going to X them for a second. The Lakers and the Knicks have nothing of interest to the Brooklyn Nets who have to build a championship team now around Kevin Durant, an all-time great player in his early to mid-30s. They don't want Russell Westbrook. They don't want your future first-round picks. They don't want pick some Knicks, whatever. They don't want those guys. There's nothing of interest there. So, you know, then you could say, well, he could he could opt out and, and do a sign and trade with, with somebody. But again, the assets aren't there. And why are the Nets going to help Kyrie Irving and another team get what they want? The nuclear option is opting out. And I can tell you for sure that there is some fear, not fear, there is some curiosity both in the Nets and around the league of, is this dude actually going to opt out and sign somewhere for the mid-level exception, whether it's the baby mid-level exception or the big one, which the Lakers do need to get some, need to do some things to actually have access to. That's $10 million. And that's, that's one avenue to get him to the Lakers. Um, we can talk about other teams that would theoretically be Kyrie Irving fits. I, I still think the likeliest outcome is that this is all a game of high profile chicken and public negotiating And that there is some middle ground here that the Nets and Kyrie Irving can land on, whether it's a two plus one. A couple of people have mentioned to me, why not do like a Chris Paul, whatever style deal where you give him the five years, but in years three, four, and five, there are games played triggers or minutes played triggers to guarantee the full deal. I still think, I just don't know who's, paying full freight for him. We can talk about that if you want. I still think that's the likeliest outcome. But again, I mean, literally nothing would surprise me. Kyrie Irving retiring would not even surprise me. Like, that's no reporting. That's just me just saying random stuff. Nothing would surprise me, Gavoni. What's your read on this? I would give him the 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 full max for all the years and just figure it out later. I mean, like, how are you going to replace Kyrie Irving? The guy averaged twenty seven points a game. He shot forty two percent for three. I, I'm He's well the versed best ball in handler re- in the NBA. I'm well versed at replacing Kyrie Irving because I've had to do it for half of every season. He's been <laughs> on my team. And where did that get you? One playoff series win in three years. That's where it got <laughs> exactly. me. This is the most talked about. One playoff series win in three years team in the history of sports. I'm tired of it, but I, he's just, we have to talk about it because, because A, he's a great player. I voted him all NBA two seasons ago. And B, Kevin Durant is sitting there like, yo, we had Kyrie Irving and James Harden. Now we have Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons. 
Well, you pat- the team, dude. Who are you complaining to? Nobody. The world, the basketball gods, the universe. <laughs> nobody. Like, but like, I'm just like, we have this guy sitting there, an all-time great player. Three months ago, Kevin Durant was considered the best player in the NBA. Giannis took that throne from him, but still, that, that's who we're talking about. Is like, he's the John Travolta looking around in Pulp Fiction meme. Like, yo, James Harden's where? Kyrie Irving is where? What? What happened? Where Karis Levert and Jared Allen, the guy that I thought DeAndre, Orden, DeAndre Jordan should start over and the coach got fired over it? Where is everybody? Yeah, so those are, to me, the most likely scenarios. I, I don't see the Nets doing a sign-and-trade for any t- the junk that people are offering or they will offer. So it's either, you know, they, they reach some kind of agreement with him or, you know, what people are kind of whispering about is, you know, there's this team that's way below the cap um, right now. And, all, you know, it's if they don't make a move by draft night, then the cap room just evaporates. And that's Oklahoma City. They're, I don't know, what is it, $24 million under? If you want to ship Yvonne Fournier and Alec Burks, package the number 11 pick with that, I think Oklahoma City would be receptive to that. You know, I mean, they just saw... Golden State, you know, spent $400 million in a championship. And Yvonne Fournier, those aren't bad contracts, you know, like you could rehab those guys and ship them back out or you could use them. I mean, so, um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, some of me, but like if you're the Knicks, can you do that? You know, like you need to get a commitment from Kyrie and like, is, is he a guy, is he a commit guy? You know, like uh, June 23rd, I don't, you know, I'd have a hard time with just giving away the number 11 pick for, you know, essentially a maybe. And so, you know, I, I mean, my prediction is that the Nets just end up re-signing him. They find some kind of agreement, you know, like you laid out, you maybe like the Chris Paul thing, but like Kyrie Irving is 30 years old. Like it's not a bad contract giving him the max. You can, you can get rid of like, not I, can't get rid of, be- but like I can't believe you're saying this. I can't, I just can't. He's I- so good. At the end of the day, Zach, Talent wins in the NBA. And who's more talented? How many players can you name in the NBA that are more talented than Kyrie Irving? I don't know, 15? Like, what is talent? Is talent cool ball handling moves or is talent winning basketball games with two way play? Like, he's, like I said, I voted him all NBA he's two years ago. He won some games in his career, Zach. Yeah, know, like, when he had LeBron next to him, he won some games and he was massive in those games to his credit. Games five, six, and seven against the Warriors in 2016, he was as good as it gets. I Look, I voted him all he's NBA. A, he's a flake. He's a flake, but he's a incredibly talented flake. I can't. And there's just not enough great players in the NBA. Somebody's going to want this guy. Like, at least James Harden plays. Now, he plays very badly in elimination games frequently, including this most recent one. But at least I know he's he might not be in shape all the time, but at least he plays. Look, I I'd rather have Kyrie Irving on a, on a full max than James Harden moving forward. I'd rather have food poisoning than either one <laughs> on a five-year max going forward. Like, if I'm the GM of the team, I'd rather have a nice comfortable pillow where I can sleep at night than five guaranteed years at 50 million a pop to either one. Let's go to the Knicks because I agree with you. The Knicks are the most likely team. The Lakers have nothing that Brooklyn wants. The mid-level thing, is he really giving up like $26 million just next year, let alone what's next to do that? Maybe, I don't know. The Knicks thing is the most interesting because they've pursued him before. They're desperate to win. You mentioned them offloading all this money to open up cap space. So really, does it just does it just end up being two guys we don't really want and the 11th pick, which is, you know, a nice pick, but not great. 
And, like, you can talk yourself into it. He's a show. It's the Garden. They almost went to the Knicks the first time. Julius Randle's still there. So you have some—R.J. Barrett would still be there. I think they—I've heard intel that they would like to—they're leaning toward re-signing Mitchell Robinson, even though that got a little—I think that those negotiations didn't really go anywhere when they could have gone somewhere. That's a decent team. I don't know where you're really going with that team. And and, and I, don't, I also don't know, like, if your goal is to attract another star— Unless we get a year of Kyrie Irving just playing basketball all the time really well, I don't know what other star is going to be like, yeah, I want to hitch my wagon to him because I just saw what happened to Durant hitching his wagon to him and it went so freaking great that I want to try it. But, you know, I, I think they're the team. You know, Dallas Dallas was always the sort of interesting theoretical fit of like the second ball handler who can shoot around Luka. I kind of think Dallas has moved on. If they were ever even considering it, I think I would bet on them re-signing Brunson and they just did the Christian Wood trade. They just made the conference finals. I don't see it. Washington would be a really interesting wild card assuming Beal goes back there. I just don't know what Washington really has to interest Brooklyn. Are they interested in like Porzingis plus KCP plus two first? I don't know. I just think that's an interesting one because I do. I don't know what you've heard on Beal. The Beal intel I have is is... I think Washington seems pretty confident he's going back, and I just don't see any other teams. I, I agree with you. The Knicks are the Knicks are the one that I would pay most attention to. Yeah, Beal it seems is has some type of a handshake with Washington. It, you know, is my understanding. I'm not reporting that, but that's just what you know NBA teams are speculating about. Um, for the Knicks, you know, I, I just don't think that they have enough time to to figure anything else out, you know, like if Kyrie is the best option they can get, then that's what they're going to do because the clock is ticking on these dudes, you know, like we both clock is ticking on Tibbs and, and Leon Rose. Yeah. That whole front office. I mean, like I've lived here in, in New York since 2008, you know, I've seen a lot of front offices come and go here. A lot of coaching staffs, nothing lasts forever in this city. And so, you know, like they had a very disappointing year last year and they don't have a lot of avenues to to really change their fortunes in a serious way. So is Kyrie like a very flawed option? Yes. But is he the best one that they have? Probably. Let's make a couple other things clear. I've been told in no uncertain terms, Anthony Davis is not getting traded. So just like let, let's just get that out of the way for let alone for Kyrie. Um, a couple other things. We mentioned Washington and New York. We might as well then bring up Malcolm Brogdon, who I think the I think the scuttlebutt that the Knicks and the Wizards are looking hard at Malcolm Brogdon trades. The Wizards are uh, what are they tenth in this draft? The Knicks are eleventh, um, building trades for Malcolm Brogdon around those picks plus other stuff. I think that scuttlebutt is very real. I don't know which team. I is don't at. think the Wiz- I don't think the Wizards are going to put their pick in the tenth pick for a Malcolm Brogdon trade, and I do think the Knicks are looking very hard at putting the number eleven pick in. So that's a much much better trade offer for Indiana if you get eleven, maybe Obi Toppin, Alec Burks Ooh, for Brogdon. If, that's if, a that's a if, home run trade for Indiana. If the Knicks trade eleven and Obi Toppin for Malcolm Brogdon, I'm just going to gawk at Knicks Twitter for like the subsequent two hours because there is going to be an all-time meltdown because Nick's Twitter, I think with mostly justification, is very, very excited about what Obi Toppin can do if he ever gets real legitimate minutes as he did toward the end of last season. And Malcolm Okay, what Bro- if it's just Kemba and Burks, you know? and Well, that's fine. I mean, Burks. Malcolm Brock is a good player. He fits. He can fit with any team. 
I actually I had heard yesterday that the Clippers they kicked around Malcolm Brogdon and that made a lot of sense to me and then I and then I subsequently heard that that they're of course they, every team kicks around lots of stuff I don't think Malcolm Brogdon Miles Turner Clippers. also definitely someone that they're going to look at and, and and you know so Brogdon fits anywhere but he's he's also injured all the time and he has I believe three years at decent money left on his deal but it seems like he's pretty likely to move and I, I he's a very good player I I get why I just you know. It's it's one of those. How much of your future are you willing to sacrifice for, you know, like a maybe another feel good season where you get the four, five, six seed and lose in the first round, and like at the end, it's like, well, that was fun. What what did it get us? But here's the thing, Zach. There just aren't that many players on the market that you could get this summer that are going to really move the needle for you. And so, people are making some real panic moves right now. You know, like there are going to be some big numbers thrown out on that first day of free agency. They're going to shock some people. And I think there are going to be some real moves uh, uh, on draft night too that, you know, involve some some real players. You know, I mean, teams are telling me the draft is our free agency. Yep. You know, there's no cap room out there. There, There's very few free agents that we that are actually moving the needle for us. Thursday night is our opportunity to make a splash. And, and it, it seems like, you know, I've heard this – song before on draft night i've been old enough i'm old enough to, to you're so have, grizzled you know, now gavoni i've been around new york since 2008 i've seen a lot of things i've seen a lot of things i just, you know every year it's like this is a draft where the nba is gonna explode and like it's happened like once or twice you, you need know? to be like, smoking a cigarette for this like take a drag i've seen a lot of things in my time kid <laughs> Let's talk about the draft. And, but the one thing I'm not interested in doing is litigating, relitigating Kevin Durant's personal choices. I keep hearing, like, he shouldn't have left Oklahoma City. He shouldn't have left the Warriors. Well, like, the people who are saying he shouldn't have left the Warriors, there's a large overlap in the Venn diagram between those people and the people who were, like, saying your Warriors championships don't count because you joined a 73-win team. So, like, what is the guy supposed to do? He just made personal choices. This one hasn't gone great. I also think Kevin Durant doesn't freaking care yeah, like people think Kevin Durant is is quote unquote insecure because of his Twitter behavior. I actually think maybe there's you know he obviously he hears the criticism. I actually think he's so secure in how freaking good he is that he's like yeah the situation goes haywire. Like we'll figure it out one way or another. I'm cool. Like I didn't I didn't feel fulfilled in Golden State. Didn't feel fulfilled in Oklahoma City or wanted a new adventure. I made some personal choices. Like I don't like when we get on TV and finger wag. Like he should have signed with Boston. He should have signed with Washington. He should have stayed with Steph Curry. Like why can't he just do whatever he wants? And and like if he had stayed with Steph Curry, we'd still be doing this bus driver thing that Barkley is doing about how he wasn't the bus driver. The championships don't count. He just can't win. On to the draft. The draft starts with Sacramento at four. Um, all sorts of rumors. They want to trade back, trade out, trade that pick for a veteran somehow. I One of my favorite pre-draft exercises is finding that team and then building the trade back deals that make sense. Um, and, and very often, nobody ends up trading back. Like I remember when we did this obsessively with the Warriors at number two. And they're just like, no, we'll just take Wiseman. That's cool. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have a deal that I really love. For Sacramento trading back because the trick is you can't like we can talk about the John Collins rumors if you want and and whether 16 which the Hawks have would be in that trade the thing about trading back from a place like four you can't trade back to like 18 or 12 or 11 unless you're getting a really 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 good player 
in return because the drop-off between four, which is Mokta's Jaden Ivey, and everybody loves Jaden Ivey, and 11 is so huge. What's the what's the latest on Sack? It feels like if the draft were tonight, like in two hours, they're making the pick. That's what I feel like. Um, I don't think that... You know, they, they've had all these exploratory conversations. They've done all the historicals on, you know, what is the fourth pick net you in a, in a, in a, in a trade. And, you know, they've looked around that, especially at options, like you said, of, you know, just kicking back a couple of spots, you know, like, and still getting a player that they really like. But I don't feel like there's like this incredible, enthusiasm for doing that on the part of these other teams you know like if you're indiana you know they're kind of looking at their group and they're like you know what you know the guy that you take it for it could very well be there at six you know like especially with ben matherin kind of you know solidifying himself in that top five or six range and so you know if keegan murray is there at six i mean that's a pretty good outcome for them you know it's like why do they need to put chris duarte in a trade to move up two spots for Jaden ivy uh, you know, what does that really do for them? I think they're, you know, they're really looking at this from a long-term perspective. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't really know. Like the Atlanta stuff is what you hear most frequently with like Collins, Kevin Herter, 16. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I've, I'm not sure that like, what does that do for Sacramento? You know, like John Collins and DeMontis Sabonis, can those guys, like who's, who's guards who, <laughs> you know, like, and does anybody guard anybody in that scenario? Amen. Um, John Collins is the most mentioned trade target in the NBA right now. If you said you have to bet a large sum of money on a player getting traded at at draft night, I I might pick John Collins over anybody else. But I'm with you, so let's do the deal. Okay, let's talk four straight up for John Collins. I mean, if I'm Atlanta... I, I, I'm, that's, oh, a, yeah, that's a step back deal because I'm losing a good present day player, but that pick is so valuable. If I'm Sacramento, I'm like, I, I'm with you. Like John Collins is a good player. He's owed a lot of money. Uh, let me bring up his salary uh, for the next several seasons. It is, he's owed, you know, he's under contract to 25, 26, but at a good number. Like I, I think it's a good contract about 25, 26 million a year. Um, but again, Colin Sabonis, I'm with you. Like it's it's where it would be a classic Kings move of like where are we are we, here we go. Let's 43 wins. Let's go for it. We got to end the playoff drought. Got a, a hell or high water. We're gonna have two home games before we get swept out of the playoffs. Um, Collins and 16. If I'm Atlanta, I start thinking, hmm, I gotta love the guy at four. And and that may not even 16 is like not a great pick. That may be not enough for Sacramento. Collins, 16, and another asset, it starts getting too complicated. The one you mentioned, six in Duarte, that was the one I liked the best as a realistic-seeming trade for both teams. Like, if I'm Indiana and I love a guy at four, and I know he's not going to be there at six, I can live with six and Duarte. And if I'm Sacramento, I can sell that as, like, that's pretty good return. But you you seem to be pessimistic. Like, I, like, Washington, 10, and who? Like Kyle Kuzma, Rui Hachimura. Like, I'm not psyched about that if I'm the Kings. I'm not going to 10 for that. Um, and Same we'll talk- question marks as Collins. How do you play Kuzma and Sabonis together? Por- Who do Portland, you seven, and, and Josh Hart. I'm not I'm not going down three spots for Josh Hart. I love Josh Hart. I'm not going down three spots for him. Um, but you seem pessimistic on, on the, the six plus Duarte one, which I kind of liked. And the, other than that, I just – who do I want if I'm 
the Kings off of Indiana. I, I don't want Brogdon. Uh, Miles Turner and Domas Sabonis, we just saw that movie. Buddy Heald, I just had on my team. Like, who else do I want? I just got to be Duarte, I think. Yeah, if I'm the Kings, I'm drafting Jaden Ivey, and I'm trading De'Aaron Fox, and I'm and I'm building slowly, you know, like, and I'm, I'm trying to make the, do this the right way, not take the, the shortcut, you know, a, a home run move, which leads me nowhere. And uh, De'Aaron Fox, that's a guy that, you know, what do you think his market is like right now? Not great. Not great. Yeah. I mean, he finished last year really strong. Um, I think the fact that they had to trade Tyrese Halliburton to get DeMonte Sabonis tells you something about where De'Aaron Fox's market is. I think Darren Fox is a good player. He just hasn't kind of made the advancements in terms of defense, playmaking. The shot has been up and down over his career. I, I thought he'd have made a little bit more of a leap by now, particularly the way he finished the 18-19 the season before the, the last one before the pandemic season. Uh, let's talk about the Spurs because I played around with number nine plus something to get up to number four. Number nine and Keldon Johnson. I don't know who says no to that one. I don't know who said Kelton Johnson's a good player. Number nine and, and Devin Vassell. I think the Spurs might just think Vassell's too good for that that deal. I think the Spurs are a under the radar interesting team to watch because obviously they keep their cards close to the vest. I can tell you teams around the league, and you've probably heard this too, are very curious about Obviously, there's the pop factor, right? Like, we don't, is pop coming back? And now we assume he is. It's so late in the calendar, but who knows? Um, if, if this team is, is, is game for a deep, deep rebuild, I think there are teams that, if they're not already, are going to start calling about DeJounte Murray. And that's a player with no reporting, no intel other than other teams hoping, hoping that he becomes available. That's a player I've got my eye on. What have you heard about the Spurs? Nothing about Murray. Uh, DeAndre Ayton, you know, like is a name you hear kind of banded about, you know, like could Phoenix sign and trade him to the Spurs for Potal and the ninth pick, something like that. You know, it's a complicated deal to make because it, would, it wouldn't happen for several weeks. But, um, you know, you will hear all this stuff about Ayton's relationship with the coaching staff and all that. I mean, Phoenix is going to be an interesting player because – they have quietly made inquiries to some of the prospects who are in expected to go to the lottery and say, hey, let's set up a FaceTime just in case we can get something done. Well, you here. reported today in your latest mock draft, and I want you to expound on that a little bit. Some Pelicans at eight and Phoenix talk, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the places that Phoenix is talking to. And so, um, you know, Cam John, that's the decision they have to make. Who are we going to pay and how much is it going to cost us? Because Cam Johnson is, I don't know, Zach, what do you think? 18 to 20 million per year, you know, on, on the high end. And, you know, He's a good player. Is, is, is a max or a you know, near max guy. And so, you know, you're, you're this, you know, salary cap is, you know, like it's kind of getting out of control if you're, you know, Robert Sarver. And so um, do they, trade Cam Johnson now for a lottery pick and then keep Aiton. You know, they're, they're, they're like looking at all kinds of scenarios I've heard, and that's just one of them. I don't know if anything gets done on draft night, but there is some activity coming out of Phoenix, which is interesting, you know, considering the way that they ended their season and all the question marks they have this summer. 
The Aiton thing is fascinating to me because obviously their season ended in incredibly demoralizing fashion. He gets benched. Monty Williams is pretty curt after the game about what happened with DeAndre Aiton. So that's internal. We're like six months removed from DeAndre Aiton. Boy, what a we love that kid. He bought into his role. He subsumed his ambitions of being a ball-dominant post player to do what we needed to do. He improved on defense. He's about the right stuff, and he's really matured. And now it's all of a sudden like, do they want him on the team next year? They absolutely cannot afford to lose him for nothing. Like, there's just no way that they, it, unless there's something insane happens, that they let a team just offer sheet him and sign him outright. Like, that just can't happen. As soon as he signs an offer sheet, you can't do a sign-and-trade. So, like, they can't let that happen. So I agree with you. And I think there's an interest on, in, on Aiton's side in the sign-and-trade route opens up the whole league for us. We don't just have to be a cap team prisoner that those are the only places we can go. I like the Spurs fit for him. I like the Pistons fit for him. And I think the Pistons are thinking about it. They have cap room. They have a hole in the middle. And I would say this. I would bet on DeAndre Ayton. I like DeAndre Ayton. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that he thinks, if he thinks this, that he thinks he can do more stuff on offense than he's been able to show in Phoenix and he's ready to do it. I don't think they win the Pelican series when Devin Booker was injured in the middle of it without DeAndre Ayton's one-on-one scoring. He made tough shots. He was a post threat. Like, I think there's a world in which he, he, he can shoot three or four threes a game at a pretty high clip in a pick-and-pop system with someone like Cade Cunningham. I don't ever want him to be Miles Turner, but I don't have any problem with him becoming like a Jokic-level volume three-point shooter. Three or four a game, mixing some post-ups, some short rolls. Defensively, he's a beast. He's got to get to the line more. But that's a player who I, I would bet... I, I would I think I'd pay him the max if I'm a rebuilding team like the Pistons and I'd be totally okay with it. It's a twenty five percent max. I'd pay him the max. Like I, I, I would bet on DeAndre Ayton. I think he's a good player. Without hesitation, I'm with you. Uh DeAndre Ayton is twenty three years old. The guy averaged seventeen and ten, you know, like this is not that complicated. Um, you know, and yeah, you didn't pay him last summer. You didn't give him the extension. And yeah, so there were some rocky moments. That's just what happens when you when you refuse to pay guys, that's just, this is the nature of the game. And so if I'm an NBA team, um, you know, like Detroit or San Antonio, I'm all over DeAndre Ayton if I can get him. The, the other team, I mentioned the 25% max, this Intel that's been out there. And I've heard the same that Charlotte is queasy about paying miles bridges, the max. Okay. That's cool. Like I get it. You got to play hardball. You got to get the best value. You got to have good contracts, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing then? Are you going to sign? If It's one thing if you're going to sign and trade him for like three future firsts and a good young player. And you're like, okay, that's, that aligns with our LaMelo ball timetable. Like if it's not a, like a complete overpay crazy trade like that, what are you doing getting all snooty about Miles Bridges? Like I understand he's not going to be a star, a superstar, but he's like a very good player. He averaged 20 points a game. He can do a lot of different things. And at some point, you just like have to build a team. He fits with Lamelo Ball. Like I don't, I don't want to overthink that one. Uh, if I'm the Hornets, can I give you my just can just for fun? Can I give you some some Spurs trades? Yeah, let's do it. The D'Angelo Russell situation has clearly gone sideways in Minnesota. Dejounte Murray is a guy that if I'm a young rising team with a need in the perimeter, I'm targeting him. So would you do if you're the Wolves? Would you do D'Angelo Russell and two? let's say top three protected first round picks for DeJounte Murray. 
who's extension eligible, by the way. We're going to learn a lot about how much the Spurs really, really want him on their team going forward. Would you do that deal if you're uh, Minnesota? Absolutely. I love that fit with Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns. That's the team. That's the team for me. Like the Wizards, if I'm the Wizards and Beal's coming back, like that's the guy I'm trying to get. If I'm Cleveland, I, I know I have Garland. Like, fine, play him off ball or play, play you know, flip-flop roles. Give me that defense. I think if I'm a rising team in that stratosphere, even the Hawks, like like looking for defense around Trey Young, that's a guy that I'm like, I'm calling them a lot to try and get in, in the game on that, if they're willing. I don't know if they are or not. Zach, what about Memphis? Or what are you hearing there in terms of Brooks, DeAnthony Melton, 21, you know, maybe putting a package there to move into the lottery? Anything on that? I've heard they're calling around in every direction. They've got a couple of picks in the 20s, do they not? Uh, like 22 and 29 or something. Is that them? I get all my yes. 20s picks. Confused. I think there's going to be a ton of movement just flipping around the 20s. Um, I have not heard anything imminent with Memphis. Dylan Brooks is extension eligible. He's making 11 and 11.4 this coming year. So I guess his extension would start at 120% of that, which Dylan Brooks may, may value himself more than that. And if so, I think that's where the trade scuttle, but is coming from with Dylan Brooks. I think the, I it's, it's not sexy. I think the most likely scenario for Memphis is just nothing really big. I, they've got the Tyus Jones free agency hanging over their head. I've seen them mentioned as a Gobert team. I don't think they're a Gobert team. I don't think when they cash their chips in and they got a giant pile of chips, I don't think it's it's Rudy Gobert. Have you heard? By the way, we should probably talk about Rudy Gobert. Have you heard any? The Jazz don't have any picks in this draft, so we have to talk about Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Have you heard? I mean, we know the teams that have been mentioned. Have you heard anything? Not really. You know, I just, I don't think that Utah, like, is looking to blow up the team. You know, like, what is that? really do for them you know like what kind of Rudy Gobert is really freaking good and so yeah a lot of people would like to have him um and it's obviously a big contract but I don't really know that that's the direction that Utah is heading in I think he's available uh but I've heard they're asking a lot as they should as they should I just haven't heard I haven't heard anything close to like a serious Rudy Gobert conversation. You know, Toronto's been mentioned. I don't really know that there's anything there right now. I've heard 33. They have the 33rd pick. I've heard that's available. I've heard Toronto is, is, is sniffing around of what they can get for that. I think they'd like to move up if possible. You know, I mean, they, they like to draft. And so, and they, they do their work. And yeah, I don't, I, I've been told that all this OG Ananobi stuff is is overblown. I mean, Me too. you know, what, uh, what player doesn't want to have a bigger role, you know, like if you don't like, like you came, like you said with, with Aiton, you know, like if you don't have that ambition to be a bigger and more important player in this league, then like, are you even a guy that I want on your team? And so, um, I, I would be shocked if they, if they did something, um, but um, let's look yeah, at I the Ananobi in a second. Let's go through the Gobert teams. Memphis, I don't think is 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 in it. Atlanta, that's the team that made a lot of sense. I just haven't heard anything about it. And maybe Atlanta just thinks like Clint Capella's eighty five percent of Rudy Gobert at half the good dollars and for fewer years. Why would we do anything um, to upend it? Brooklyn's got a lot of stuff going on. Charlotte is interesting. Gordon Hayward plus PJ Washington plus some picks. I mean. To me, that's that's rushing the timetable too much 
you know, um, putting a 30-year-old center, whatever Gobert is, with LaMelo Ball is like, why am I sacrificing so much to do that, even if it's just P.J. Washington and picks? They also need a coach. Like, their coach just was like, yeah, I'm out. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm good. I'm good here winning championships. That's great, yeah. Chicago is the team that there's been all this reporting on, all this noise, and, and that's been an obvious fit ever since their season kind of figured out because they have the Vucevic salary plus – you know, they can supplement it with they've got a, a Blazers pick and their picks are also encumbered, unfortunately. I just I got no hard reporting on this because there's been no hard reporting to really get on this. My gut just says, I don't know what you I, I don't know what you think about this. My gut just says they don't put Pat Williams in that trade. And if they don't put Pat Williams in that trade, I just don't think there's a go bear deal for them. I haven't heard anything there, honestly. I've, I haven't even studied that. But I know Vooch, you know, wants an extension, and um, you know oh, they, wow. they're look they're looking at centers in this draft. You hear them, you know, Walker Kessler, Mark Williams. Those guys are associated with those picks. They have the 18th pick, so maybe maybe there's something there. But I, I haven't heard anything about it. I'm glad you brought up Ananobi because there's been all this Ananobi to Portland for seven, right? All this, it's that, that's been written somewhere. Uh, and Portland at seven, I, I'm fascinated to know what, hear what you know about that. And obviously there's been Jeremy Grant rumors. There's been trade for a veteran, quick rebuild around Dame rumors. Seven for Anunobi. My immediate reaction to that, which has not changed, is why in the world would the Raptors do that? Like, OG Ananobi is 24 years old. Now, maybe he's so unhappy that the bridge has been burned. I don't hear anything. I'm with you. I've heard the same thing, that that's been overblown. OG Ananobi is 24 on a good contract for two more seasons. The next six years of OG Ananobi's career are indisputably, by magnitudes, more valuable than the number seven pick in the draft. Go look at what the number seven pick actually gets you on average. The, the argument the other way is, Toronto, as long as they have Siakam, Van Vliet, and Scotty Barnes was so good so fast, and Precious Achua showed us so much right last season, his first season in Toronto, that you can trade one of your core guys, which Ananobi is, get another bite at the apple in the top 10, maybe make your present-day team not that much worse because of all that support I just mentioned, all those other good players I just mentioned. I mean, Fred Van Vliet's an all-star. Pascal Siakam made All-NBA. Scotty Barnes is Rookie of the Year. And, and we have confidence, the Raptors, in our ability to draft, just nail the seven pick. We just nailed the four pick. We're going to nail the seven pick, too. I'm just like, okay, cool, I get that. If I want to trade OG and Obi, eventually I can do better than the number seven pick in the draft. I just never really got why that would be a thing Toronto would do. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. I mean, it's really hard to, to, to find a guy like OG and Obi, develop him into what he is, get him on a reasonable contract, I just don't think they're at the stage right now where they're like, eh, let's just take a step backwards, you know, like in draft Keegan Murray or something, you know, like who is going to take him two or three years to get to the level that OG is at now. So I just I don't think that makes a great deal of sense for them. You know, I think that they like their core. They have like six guys that they that they like and those guys are young and there's still room for improvement there and they're going to tinker along the margins. But I think they're gonna they're gonna go for it next year and, and see how good they could be. Your latest mock out today again on ESPN.com 
How many more times will you revise the mock between? What mock are we at now, and where will we get to by draft day? I haven't counted, but I'm like constantly tinkering with it on like the back end on my side. So I'm not, I'm, you know, and then we publish it like once a week or so. But yeah, I'm going to keep updating it every few hours, I think. Your latest mock has the Blazers taking Sharp, the mystery man from kind of from Kentucky, uh, and does not mention much about trades. And, and obviously, you know, Portland with Lillard, there's been all this trade talk. Is, is, are, and they have the same sort of, you know, the, the issue I mentioned with Sacramento is like, what's the deal? What's the, if we're trading back or trading out, who's the guy? What's the trade that makes sense? It's actually not that easy to find. We just dismissed the Ananobi one. Um, is, is, are we heading towards a, for all this noise, maybe they just take the guy they like? Yeah, I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, like their front office, you know, Joe Cronin just got a four-year extension. You know, you have this mandate now to rebuild the team to, to and, you know, try and get to the level that you want to get. And yeah, obviously you have this, you know, the, a, a clock ticking with Damian Lillard. He's 31 years old. You need to pay him most likely. I mean, how many years do you give him? What do you do with him after that? Those are the question marks. But there's no like quick fix they can make on Thursday night that just like propels them back into the playoffs and makes them like real contenders. So why would they trade that pick? That's what, you know, I, nobody's like, you see all these rumors out there. Like nobody's actually asked that question. Like, how does that make any sense for them long-term? And then, you know, I, you know, Lillard, it seems like he's very involved there. He's at all their workouts. He's around the team all day. Not that easy to trade a guy like that. Like he's been there his whole career. I mean, he's an incredible influence on their young players. I don't think that they're, you know, my guess, and I don't, I haven't really asked them this question, is they pay Lillard and they, at some point, they find an agreement with him, you know, and trade him to a place that he wants to go to and they get a nice haul in return. That's my prediction. I haven't, you know, haven't asked Schmitz that question yet. I probably should, but um, that's the way I see it going personally. Yeah, the, you always have well, you hope I mean, the money is going to be absolutely ginormous with Lillard's next deal. You hope you always have the, if necessary, break in case of emergency, Lillard for a bunch of draft picks trade in the bag if things go badly. If you take Sharp and he's unhappy in a year or whatever it is. Um, this is going to sound weird because I just, you know, crapped all over the idea that the number seven pick is some golden ticket asset. It's it's an okay asset. For a team like the Blazers, who, you know, have a, a, some interesting young guys now, particularly Anthony Simons, I don't know if I'd trade that pick straight up for Jeremy Grant. I just don't, I don't know if I would. Um, obviously, Dame's wishes are, are, are going to be important here too. Jeremy Grant's a good player. He's a good player in his prime. I also have to pay him a lot of money. He's extension eligible. And if I make that trade, there's definitely going to be an understanding that I'm going to give you a max extension that starts in the high 20s and goes for a long time. I I bet, again, I, this is, it. let's call it informed speculation or whatever you want. I think Detroit would be cool doing Grant for number seven. Maybe they would, maybe they would want another little something extra, a couple seconds or something. I don't know. I don't know if Portland, I have no intel on whether Portland would actually do that deal. If I were them, I don't think I would. I don't think that's anywhere close to the value of Jeremy Grant, the seventh pick. I think you're talking closer to like a late first round pick. You know, I mean, this guy has one more year on his deal. He, you know, 
people look at his numbers in kind of a hollow way, you know, and, um, you know, he's, he's a good player. He's not a great player, you know, so he's not an all-star. So I, I just don't, I don't see that being anywhere close to what, you know, what the hall is for them. If I think Detroit would like to move Jeremy Grant, but not for the seventh pick. I mean, you, no way. You, you wait. You you think Detroit would say yes to the seventh pick? You think Portland would? Oh, not absolutely. Do it to, to be okay. Heart, so we're in, we're in, we're in agreement. We're in agreement. Yeah. Um, I, you're you're the Intel king of the draft. I'll just tee you up. Like, what team haven't we talked about? What rumblings haven't we talked about? Who do you want to get into that we haven't talked about? The floor is yours. Oklahoma City. I mean, like that. This is their night. You know, like they can literally do anything they want. They're now after the Jamichael Green trade, they're $24 million under the cap. So they could take on like a pretty bad salary from someone and, and, and just keep loading up on assets. I mean, they also got some young players that, you know, people like you know, a little bit. Ken, Kenrich Williams, for example. Um, so um, Lou Dort, you know, like what do they do with him? Do they, you know, I mean he's extension eligible. I mean, he's got this team option. They need to figure out, you know what? So Oklahoma and they have two, 12, 34 and 14 first rounders from between 2023 and 2027. So that's, I just like, sometimes when you just say the basic reality of things, it really hits home. 14 first rounders in a five year span it's just bonkers. Like you can't, you literally can't roster all those players. You just can't, you can't do it. And it's. I was working on a 2023 mock yesterday that's going to come out right after the day after the draft. And I started, you know, reeling off, you know, like which picks have already been, a lot of picks have been traded already for next year. And like Oklahoma City is involved in like 10 of them, you know, <laughs> like uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. They can flip here. They can do that. You know, they've got Detroit. They've got, um, uh, they can swap with the Clippers uh, they've got there and it, it just keeps going year after year after year and so if they want to do something on draft night they can get it done you know and so I think you got and I mean we know that Sam Presti um, is not afraid to to make trades you know the question is like are people going to want to pull the trigger you know like just talking to GM's decision makers the last few days here's what they say so we've been spending the last two months talking about the draft, working guys out, watching film, going to the combine, interviewing players, meeting with our doctors, gathering intel reports. At some point, you know, like you're so invested in these guys, you just want to make a pick, you know? Even if you're offered something great, it's a very human thing to just want to make a draft pick. And so that's why you don't see that many trades happening on draft night historically and is this year going to be different that's what i want to see um you mentioned oklahoma city denver just to review oklahoma city acquired jamichael green in a future nuggets pick for the 30th pick in this year's draft going to denver now and two second rounders i believe also going to denver i thought that was a good trade for denver actually they they Rarely do you see a salary dump where a team comes out almost equal in draft equity. The details on that pick that Denver sent Oklahoma City, the future Denver first, haven't really been reported. Um, from what I've learned, it's top five protected in 2027, 2028, 
and 2029. And if it somehow has not conveyed in any of those three years, which is extremely unlikely, it converts to two seconds, I guess, in 2030 when the world will be underwater anyway, and none of this actually matters. Um, that's but that value that's for 20 for a, for the number 30 pick, you know, like in taking on some. So I know that the Nuggets needed to do that, you know, from a luxury tax standpoint or whatever, you know, uh, but, um, you know, the Nuggets are another team to kind of keep an eye on. You know, like you hear all these rumblings, Bones Highland, is is he potentially available? Why would they do My, that? I have no idea. You know, like it, there's a sense that they need to get bigger and tougher in the backcourt. You know, when you talk about, you know, they have the 21st pick, all these guys are being banded about that are like, you know, like Dale and Terry, Christian Brown, Wendell Moore, um, you know, those type, you know, Marjan Bochamp, you know, like bigger guard wings who can defend multiple positions. It feels like, you know, with, with Jokic at the five, you know, they want to shore up, you know, their perimeter defense. And there, the question mark is, you know, it bones Highland and Monte Morris, you know, can you win a playoff series? You know, it would, and Jamal Murray, obviously as your backcourt. Uh, that's fair. They did make the conference finals in, in, in the bubble. Um, the Bones thing is interesting. I thought he had a really good year. I, I, I kind of don't get that one. But if you've got a good future first or something. I agree with you, by the way, on, on the OKC, that Denver pick that OKC got. Giving yourself three shots to bet against a team who's really good right now, having a down year in like five or six years, usually that ends up being a good bet. Usually somewhere along the line you catch them. Someone gets hurt. Someone leaves in free agency. All of a sudden you're sitting on like the 10th pick in the draft. That, that, that's a good just a good general practice. Anyone, anyone else we, we haven't we haven't got to yet? I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at your mock now. We hit the Pelicans. Uh, what about Houston? You know, like it doesn't feel like they want to make three first round draft picks. They have three, they have 17, and they just got 26 from Dallas in the Christian Wood trade. They made four first round picks last year. To do seven first rounders in less than a year that's pretty much unprecedented and so people feel like that that dallas houston trade might still be open you know for a uh-huh. third team if somebody wants to come in there get a late first round pick you know is, is josh green maybe available on dallas's side so that's one that i'm kind of keeping an eye on and also the spurs you know we we talked a little bit about them but they have 9 20 uh 25 and 38 no, very few people expect them to to make four draft picks. Uh, yeah, you, you, know, you have Thursday. them. You have them taking Jalen Duran at nine. Uh, this Sohan kid is said to be another player the Spurs are exploring. That's your reporting. I've been told that I'm going to love Jeremy Sohan, um, but yeah, I agree with you. The Spurs are are super are super interesting for lots of different reasons. I have no idea which direction they're going to go. But yeah, any team with three firsts. You know, you saw the OKC model with the Pokashevsky deal a few years ago. Package two of them to go just target a player you really like. A um, lot of stuff floating around. It does feel like there's more trade stuff floating around than usual. I, I Your skepticism, though, is on point. There's always a lot of trade stuff floating around. And, like, I think there'll be a lot of trades. But most draft day trades end up being, like, so-and-so trades 22 and 29 for 23 and 27 or something like that. You know what I mean? What about the Lakers? Should we talk about them real quick? I mean, they're being active, you know, like you're hearing some, you know, they're calling uh, Indiana and saying, what about, what do you, how do you feel about Westbrook and 
Tail and Horton Tucker and our 2026 first rounder. And, you know, they just get a nice, you know, chuckle and say, no, thank you. We've got better deals on the table than that. Well, they can trade 27 and 29 now, right? So they can trade two firsts, I think. Um, Right. uh, I don't what. So so you're hearing the Lakers are making calls trying to trying to turn that into theory. I'm guessing if they're calling the Pacers, that's about Brogdon. Brogdon. Yeah. um, Yeah. Which is probably not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, look, you can build interesting rust deals. I mean, the Charlotte one has been speculated about a lot with Hayward going going Hayward and somebody going to the Lakers. Um, I think the Lakers want to get into the second round too. You know, like they they hit that home run with Austin Reeves. They're you know there's a, they're talking to a lot of agents about like if, you know this guy should go and draft and that guy can go and draft and, you know, we've got roster spots to fill. We we need players for next year. We need cheap guys who are ready to play and so. Do they get into the 40s, you know, just buying a, a second round pick? Do, you know, do people want to throw Rob Palenka that kind of bone, you know, like by just selling a pick? It doesn't feel like that right now, but you never know. I mean, there's like we said, there's a lot of teams that have a lot of picks. And, you know, like the Timberwolves have um, 40, 48 and 50, you know, like they don't. What do they need three second round picks for when they already have 19? So. There'll be some a lot of movement in the second round too, which is normal. There's a, half of those picks get flipped. It's impossible to keep track of. Jokic gets drafted during a Taco Bell commercial, you know. So the second round is going to be a wild ride. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's perfect that it's Taco Bell. It really for like five different reasons. It's perfect that it's Taco Bell. It would not be as funny if it were like Ace Hardware or Kia cars or something. It's perfect that it's Taco Bell. Um, Let's end with the Warriors, uh, who are picking at twenty-eight. A lot of uh, let me see who who do you have mocked there? The same Wake Forest kid, Jake Laravia. Um, the Warriors have Kevon Looney and Gary Payton the second, and then below them, I think a tier Otto Porter in free agency. There's going to be a, a market for Looney, perhaps a robust one. A market for Payton, perhaps a robust one. We're talking about a payroll that, if you bring back those guys plus luxury tax, is going to be approaching four hundred million dollars next year. Um, are they going to make this pick? I haven't heard anything different. I mean, like these are the kind of guys that they need to have on their roster, like cost controlled rookie scale contract, uh, you know, a, a young contributor. Um, they've got, you know, some really interesting young talent already with, you know, Kaminga and Moody. And I don't know how you feel about Wiseman, but, um, so that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I uh, assume that they're going to make this pick and, and just, you know, add to the stockpile of talent. And like, who knows, maybe one day down the road, they need to package all that talent and make a, another big trade, you know? So that's, it's nice to have good young players to, to help facilitate those kind of moves. Jonathan Gavoni, you are the busiest man at the company right now. Thank you for taking a little bit of a break, really, to come on this podcast and now go back to the phones, go back to the mock draft 24.2.5, and uh, I will see you at Barclays Center on Thursday for the NBA draft and look forward to reading your 2023, 2024, and 2029 mock drafts coming up soon with a bunch of dudes I never heard of. You're the the best in the business. Jonathan Gavoni, thank you. Thanks for having me, Zach. Great to be with you.